Our story begins in Salisbury, North Carolina. It's a charming town that sits in the heart of the Carolinas, known for friendly locals and historic sprawling mansions. It looks like Pleasantville, USA, the kind of place that's low on crime and high on Southern hospitality. But sometimes, the most shocking secrets rest in the most unlikely places, waiting to be uncovered. And soon, local police and the mainstream media were about to be introduced to a family with a sinister past. For two years, married couple Casey and Sandy Parsons allegedly hid the fact that their niece, 13-year-old Erica Parsons, had been missing, gone. The question was why? And where had she gone? As the search began, photos circulated showing a young girl very petite with big brown eyes and a wide, friendly smile. Her image captured nationwide attention. She was literally the picture of innocence. You couldn't fathom someone wanting to cause her harm. Yet her fate was unknown. The Parsons couple became the central focus of the investigation. Back in 2013, when public interest in the case had reached a fever pitch, they granted me an exclusive interview. I wanted to see for myself what they were hiding, to see if they would try to deceive me. But more than anything, I wanted to shine a spotlight on this case and do everything in my power to try and find this young girl. I never could have guessed what would ultimately transpire that I was about to become enmeshed in a case of outlandish lies, stealing, and ultimately a shocking polygraph test. This was a case that shook me to my core. It was the story of a child that the world had forgotten. A child that seemed to reach out from the void, begging for justice. And as I speak about that now, as I sit here today, It has an eerie association to my thoughts and feelings about Lori Vallow and her two missing children. The repetitious nature of the fact that children in America can just simply go off the grid, can simply go missing, and no one notice is so very, very troubling to me. You're listening to Episode 1 of Little Girl Lost, the case of Erica Parsons. This is Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. I am Dr. Phil. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We 
like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Erica was born in 1998 in Mooresville, North Carolina, to a woman named Carolyn Parsons and her husband, Billy Dean Goodman. From the beginning, this little girl's life was far from a fairy tale. She was born with developmental disabilities and was diagnosed with hearing loss. It was said that she might have signs of fetal alcohol syndrome. The family had significant issues. For one, money was scarce. Carolyn and Billy already had three other children, so having yet another mouth to feed was a financial struggle. But perhaps the family's biggest problem was the patriarch himself, Billy. He was known to have a substance abuse problem, and he has a rap sheet that could make even a hardened criminal blush. This guy's had run-ins with the law that span over a decade. Over the years, his charges had ranged from a DUI to drug possession to even assault by strangulation. Safe to say he was never going to be up for Father of the Year or Husband of the Year. More on him later. Life was tumultuous in the home, to say the least, and Carolyn didn't feel like she could raise Erica. Later on during the investigation, she told reporters herself that the reason she gave up Erica was because she didn't have a steady job or home. Carolyn herself had experienced a difficult childhood, bouncing from different homeless shelters to foster cares, and she wanted to give Erica roots and spare her from that trauma. According to American SPCC, there are over 437,000 children in the foster care system. Now, neglect is the number one reason children are typically placed in foster care, and number two is parental drug abuse. And when you have the two combined, children seem to have virtually no chance. You have to think about the kind of stress this places on a child. Now, children are incredibly resilient. They really do try to land on their feet, find a way to fit in. But let's face it, many folks who choose to foster do an incredible job of providing a home for children. But then there are those who, well, there are those who warehouse them for the money. And sometimes these children go from the frying pan to the fire. In the best of circumstances, they are away from their family And it is not a good circumstance. It's never an ideal circumstance. Children have this unique ability to figure out how things are their fault when it's not a good scenario. They blame themselves. They feel like, look, maybe if I'd been a better child, my parents would have loved me enough to keep me. Their self-image erodes. Their self-worth erodes. So oftentimes, these children in foster care come in with baggage, and then they contribute to it by their own internal dialogue. And if they have to move from one foster care to another, that just compounds their feelings of poor self-worth, poor self-image. Now, foster parents can bond with these children and help them overcome this, but it's always an uphill battle. 
Now, at first glance, it's tempting to criticize a parent who chooses to place their children somewhere outside the home. But later on, when Carolyn was interviewed, it was evident that she did this out of care and with good intentions. I've encountered people during my professional work where sometimes they are just put between a rock and a hard place. She recognized that this little girl couldn't thrive in her home, and with everything going on, the money, the other children to look after, a husband addicted to drugs, she felt like she was making a sacrifice, not throwing this child away. She felt like she was doing what a good mother does. Thankfully, there was another option besides making her child a ward of the state. Her ex-husband's brother, Sandy Parsons, and his wife, Casey, agreed to adopt the little girl. It seemed like such a blessing. Carolyn had found her daughter the home she couldn't provide. She trusted them to raise her as if she was their own. But if Carolyn had thought her little girl was going to be swept away by a knight in shining armor, well, she was sorely mistaken. Things were about to take a harsh turn for Erica, and life was going to be anything but rosy. So Erica is adopted at the age of two years old. She's living with Casey and Nancy, as far as anyone knows, from the age of two which was in 2002, until 2013. So let's fast forward to July 30th of 2013, the day that everything, and I mean everything, changed. Rowan County Police received a disturbing report from Erica's 20-year-old adopted brother, Jamie Parsons. He alleged that his adopted sister, was missing. In 2013, do the math, Erica would now supposedly be 15 years old. Anytime a child or teen goes missing, it's typically reported the very same day, or certainly within a few days, so that of course police are aware and can take action. Here's where the bombshells come in. Jamie, the adopted brother, claimed Erica had been missing not for two days, not for three days, but for two years. He told police she was missing because their adopted parents had killed her and buried her in their backyard. That's right. He tells police that his sister had been missing for two years and that her adopted parents had killed her and buried her in their backyard. First of all, he's saying all of this happened two years ago, without Casey or her husband breathing a word about it. Of course, if this is true, and they had killed her and buried her in the backyard, you wouldn't expect them to go report it. Two years, and the parents hadn't been compelled to report their daughter was missing. Not only that, but why had Jamie waited to come forward and tell police? Apparently, a fight with his parents had spurred him to turn them in. So police, of course, are looking at him suspect as well. Think about this. Let's take a step back. 
Here we have a little girl that has been turned over to the biological mother's ex-husband's brother. The biological mother does this as a sacrifice, thinking, okay, I cannot give this child the home she deserves, but I am going to entrust her to my ex-husband's brother, Sandy, and his wife, Casey. It's the best thing for her. I'm going to make the sacrifice and give her a chance. She's two years old. She has her whole life ahead of her. We now fast forward 13 years. And fast forwarding 13 years, we find out that she's been missing. And this adopted brother has known for two years that she's been missing and reports that she's been murdered. What are police saying to themselves? What are they saying? These parents have killed this child. This brother has known it. No one has come forward. Can this girl never catch a break? Why has he waited this long? He finally just gets upset with his parents and comes forward. Does no one have a moral compass here? Naturally, police saw this for what it was, a massive red flag. But just because common sense told him Casey and Sandy were a suspicious pair didn't mean finding out the truth would be easy. For one thing, it quickly became apparent to the sheriff's office that Jamie wasn't going to be a consistent witness. He soon recanted his statement that Casey and Sandy had murdered Erica, claiming that he simply went to police so they could find her and they would just tell him what city she was in. Jamie was known to be a rebellious teen with a temper problem, and his story kept evolving. He then claimed his adopted parents hadn't killed her. He said he woke up one morning in November 2011 and that Erica was simply gone. Casey and Sandy told him they had taken the 13-year-old to visit her biological grandmother in Asheville. The Parsons couple stood by Jamie's new story, telling investigators that they had also taken their biological daughter, Brooke, with them when they dropped off Erica at their grandmother's house. So right from the start, the police had their work cut out for them when it came to finding out the truth. One thing for sure, it's not adding up that this first young man comes forward and says Erica was murdered two years ago, but then quick as lightning changes his story to say, that he was told she was actually with a grandmother. Regardless, this was the one that triggered the investigation. True or false, it started the ball rolling. Otherwise, who knows how long it would have taken for someone to even notice that the girl had vanished. Of course, the longer someone has been missing, the colder the trail becomes and the harder it is to find them. For one thing, if there was foul play, the Parsons have now had two years to allegedly get rid of critical evidence such as body, murder weapon, blood, hair, fingerprints, fibers, any evidence that is so crucial for forensics. In addition to physical evidence possibly being destroyed, the longer someone is gone, the less likely it is that people can get helpful answers out of any witnesses. They tend to move on, disappear, memories decay. 
even if you were a witness to something important to a case without even knowing it, as the years pass, it all fades into the wallpaper of your life. Regardless of Jamie's wavering versions of events, the dam had broken and police were going to have to decipher what was really going on in the Parsons household and where was this young teenage girl who had somehow fallen through the cracks? They didn't know. Had she been murdered? Had she run away? Was she with a grandmother? What they did know is she was nowhere to be found. Police began their investigation All at once, a little girl who many people didn't even know existed was now front-page news. And of course, right from the get-go, police honed in on Casey and Sandy. And immediately, things just didn't add up. Police searched the family home but found no sign of her. No belongings. It's eerie to think about. It was as if this child had vanished into thin air or even stranger had never existed. When the couple met with investigators, they seemed tight-lipped. They told the sheriff that Erica had gone to spend time with her biological family. When police questioned Casey and Sandy about where this child was, they had an answer. With her biological grandmother, Nan, who resided in Asheville roughly two hours away. Unfortunately for the Parsons, there's this thing investigators do called fact-checking. There was absolutely no sign of this woman, this Irene Nan Goodman. This couple claimed they had been in touch with her beginning in 2011 and that she had expressed an interest in spending time with Erica. They alleged they had arranged to meet this woman in the parking lot of a McDonald's for family visits Beginning in September of that year, Erica would come back and forth and loved spending time with her grandmother. By December of 2011, they maintained they met with Nan for a final time and dropped Erica off so she could stay with her for the Christmas holiday. On the surface, this story could be plausible. A teen wants to reconnect with her biological family. But this story was so filled with holes. When they sat down with me, uh, let's just say I pressed for some specifics. You tell me, let, let me ask you, Sandy, you're this girl's father. Yes. And you go a year and a half and you don't hear a peep out of her. You don't see her. You don't hear from her. You don't talk to her. You don't call her. You don't... No contact for a year and a half. How is that okay with you? Well, I thought it was just a rebellious teenager. that um, She'll come home when she needs something or get in trouble or when she gets mad at Nan, she'll be back. Uh, but um, I've just been waiting for her to come back on her own. Uh, because I know she was healthy when she um, got out of the van that day. Wouldn't you think if this is a responsible enough woman that you would turn your daughter over to her, that she would be responsible enough to call you? 
I just so knew Nan was taking care of her because. How, it, but how did you know that? Because my wife told her she, she was a good woman. And how, like, how did you know that? You never went to her house. Well, you never verified her name. You never knew. During the weekend visits, when she come back, not only would she tell me how Nan treated her and took care of her and gave her lots of gifts, she would tell my other kids. I just have to tell you, bells were going off in my head so loud I couldn't even hear. The story just doesn't pass muster. They claimed they had packed a bag for Erica to take with her, but that when they met Nan, she didn't even take the bag with her. That makes no sense to me. I pressed them. She didn't want to take anything? Not even a sweater? Casey's defense was that a woman nicknamed Strawberry was with Nan and told the couple they had bought her a whole new wardrobe. Now, no normal parent leaves their child without clothing because a person they've just met introducing themselves as Strawberry, any kind of berry, claims they have everything the child could need at their remote family farm? Come on, that just wouldn't happen. Most parents don't even let their children sleep over at a friend's house if they don't know at least something about the family. I told them to their faces the whole account sounded like a fantastical story. You're telling me that all of a sudden this little girl is sent to live with her long-lost grandmother who picks her up at a McDonald's in an SUV and takes her to this idyllic farm with a whole new wardrobe. I said, this is like when you invent a story to comfort your children about their hamster or their goldfish dying and you don't want to upset them. Instead of this little girl's missing, it's like an excuse they created that she's gone to a better place and everything is going to be rainbows and lollipops. It rolls around her birthday. Did you call to wish her happy birthday? I did. And, and? that's when the phone, it was saying it cannot accept calls. I honestly figured that the phone, Erica had blocked it and would not let me call her. Because I was just under the impression Erica didn't want to come back home. And she was going to do what it took for me to get. But that's the reason children don't make decisions. That's the reason adults make decisions. This is your child. This this is not a little kid. This was a 14-year-old girl at this time. This minor was in their care, their responsibility. They were acting like handing over their daughter was the equivalent of handing over some car keys. They were the ones who adopted Erica. She was their daughter. If this Nan person was real, the whole arrangement still would have made no sense. The average person would take so much more care in finding out who was watching their pets, let alone their child. I even told them that this Nan figure brought to mind Casey Anthony's infamous creation of Zanny the Nanny. Remember that nanny she alleged was watching her little girl and then investigators found out this woman was a total fabrication? Like I said to them, they were the adults. It's their job to find a way to talk to their daughter. If you believe your minor is blocking your calls, it's up to you to make sure you find a way to speak to them. 
It's your job to unblock the calls. You don't just brush it off as the child is going through a rebellious teen phase for two years. Come on. At best, they were coming across as unfit parents. But it seemed apparent they were making up a bogus story to cover up the dark truth. To me, it seemed like negligence or unfit was the best-case scenario. I was getting a bad, bad feeling here. That they knew where this child was and that she wasn't safe and sound at some country farm was really what was in my mind. Soon after their initial interview with police, Casey and Sandy did something very curious. They hired a lawyer. That's right, they lawyered up. Now, if you truly believe, authentically know, that you dropped your adopted daughter off with her biological grandmother, why are you lawyering up? Where there's smoke, there's fire. Why would this couple lawyer up? Right off the bat, they seem more concerned with covering their own hide than finding this little girl that they've been raising since she was a toddler. In fact, they weren't making any effort to find her at all. Think about it. If the average parents really thought for years that their child was safe with other relatives, and then the police came knocking they would immediately be alarmed and want to sort things out. They wouldn't just lawyer up and try to stonewall an investigation. Hell, little Abner could smell a rat here. Now, my interview with the couple would come later, but from the very moment this couple sat down with me for an interview, they were pulling the woe-is-me card. They portrayed themselves as victims who everyone else was against. Listen to what they had to say. Sandy's parents, uh, Erica's adoptive grandparents, are telling the media they don't trust what's going on here, right? Yes. Because you say your family's always bad-mouthing you and they don't like you, but now this is your family, your parents. Also, my family always uh, didn't like us. We were shunned from parties, birthday parties, baby showers, weddings. I've just been shunned from my family what, when why? I married. What do they not like about you? They don't, uh, they never did uh, since I married my wa- uh, wife. You know, my own mama. would even help give our wedding that we, they gave all so the So they're mad at you because he married you? I guess so. And your parents are mad at you because your whole know. family's mad at you for They've you don't know why. Done this. Clearly, these two had an explanation or in my opinion, excuse for everything. And the overriding theme they convey is that they were the good-hearted relatives who took the child in. This is not my first time to talk to broken families. And I could tell these two were being anything but real. I directly asked them, why doesn't your family like you? Why do they suspect you? And they floundered and tried to evade the question because they were feeling the heat. As you heard, the one reason Sandy did give me was that his family didn't like his wife. Now, that piqued my interest. That told me there might be a good reason that this woman who was sitting in front of me speaking in soft tones might not be all that she presented herself to be. Oftentimes, 
people try to put on one persona in front of me when they're very different in the real world. Sometimes if everyone's got a problem with you and you're the common denominator, the problem is you. I mean, think about it. If you get up in the morning and go to the grocery store and get in a conflict, okay, it could be the other person. But then if you leave there and go to the car wash and there's a conflict, and then you leave there and you go by the church and there's a conflict, and then you leave there and you go by the school and there's a conflict, well, what's the common denominator? You were at the store, you were at the car wash, you were at the church. Everywhere you were, there was a conflict. The common denominator is you. Uh, That's what this couple was conveying to me with their whiny excuses. It's one of my 10 life laws. You create your own experience. I had to ask them point blank why the police were targeting them. Is there anything in your history that would cause them to be suspect of you? I have never had any legal trouble whatsoever. Never. A speeding ticket. Well, we know when they showed up and did this evaluation of the kids, with the exception of the fact that you don't know where Erica is right now, the social worker said there's no cause for concern or alarm here. Yeah. Um, So we know that, right? Um, they, they've been to your house four other occasions. Did they ever find anything amiss then? Never. Ever remove any children? No. Never. But not only did the police suspect these two, even Sandy's own parents, Erica's biological grandparents, thought that he and Casey could be hiding something. Eyewitness News reporter Dave Faraday dug deeper into this case and tracked down her family. Steve and Janet Parsons tried to keep their emotions in check as they looked upon the photo of their granddaughter, Erica. They have not seen her for the last year, but never thought the girl who was adopted at birth by Steve's son could be in trouble until they learned of the police investigation that started just last week. My fear is something happened and nobody's telling us. I'm not talking about the law. I'm talking about my boy and my daughter-in-law. I'm so worried. This is such a precious child. No one ever wants to lose their child. This says a lot. If your own parents are giving news reports when they know you're under suspicion, and express that you might be hiding something, that's not a good sign. When I asked the couple about how they felt about these statements, they retaliated by calling them liars. And Casey made sure to discount her son's accusations as well. What do you think about what they're saying? Say lies. You have to remember too, my son, that redid all this to us um, and saying all these lies. He lives with that side of the family. So, again, from a law enforcement standpoint, your own people are pointing the finger at you. Your your son, your your family of origin, your family. Everybody's saying, "Uh, "Well, these are these are some bad people here." My son. That one son does not like us. Right. He, I've and had to have him put in jail, and he does not like us. 
Now, many parents have issues with their teens, but that doesn't usually lead them to making up such an outrageous lie. The truth was, this clearly was a dysfunctional family that had more issues than you could shake a stick at. It didn't help matters that Jamie was, by all accounts, a troubled youth. He had gotten in a physical altercation with his family the very night before he filed the missing persons report. That goes to motive. The specifics were still a mystery, but one thing was clear. This little girl had been missing for two years, and no one had done a damn thing about it. Now, Erica had attended public school as a young child, but the Parsons had pulled her out of school and opted to homeschool her. This meant for years, this little girl was unaccounted for. There are limited laws in North Carolina that apply to homeschooling, so there was no one checking in on or monitoring Erica when Casey registered her home as Parsons Christian School. She listed herself as the chief administrator. According to the Department of Non-Public Education, the only document they had was Casey's registration. Now, Casey did this back in 2005 when Erica was seven. That means from 2005 to 2013, this couple was entirely responsible for this child's education. And having met these folks with their, in my opinion, harebrained stories, that's a scary thought. The lack of clear answers, this mystery grandmother who can't be found, no school records, the facts were adding up against these two. On our next episode, more shocking news of Casey and Sandy's deeds come to light as the search for Erica heats up. A woman is about to come forward with an allegation of a stolen child. What else is this couple hiding? And will she ever be found? And still to come, we'll talk more about one of the most explosive sit-down interviews I've ever conducted with suspects in my entire career. You've been listening to Little Girl Lost, the case of Erica Parsons, mystery and murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil.